to the book of Acts, <clears throat> the book of Acts, in chapter 9, verses of scripture you'll probably all know well, verse 1, I'm to actually wrote the title of this on top of my page, so I think it was something like the road of religion that ended in relationship or something like that anyway. <clears throat> We'll just read from verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went on to the high priest. And he desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether there were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight. Neither did he eat nor drink. We'll just leave it there. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Jesus. Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I just come before you, Lord, this evening. Lord, and I ask, Lord, that your name be glorified. Lord, I ask, Lord, for a message not from me, but from you unto your people. Lord, we need a message from you, Lord, for these times that we live in. Lord, we need your word, not words of man. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just prostrate my spirit, as it were, before you this evening. That, Lord, every word from my lips would be from you. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would take over. Lord, that your spirit would move. Lord, lead me and guide me, Lord, into your word this evening. Lord, that it may touch the hearts of your people. Lord, just come and have your way. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Here we have Paul. What an amazing account you have of, should I say, Saul, who later became Paul. And it's amazing that when you see this man's life, he went from one of the greatest enemies of the church to possibly one of the greatest evangelists in the Bible. It was amazing to see the transformation 
of this man. And even when you look in verse 1, it says, breathing out threatenings and slaughter. And the Greek actually gives that as a literal meaning of, he lived and breathed their destruction. That's what he lived for. It gives the idea that this wasn't half-hearted. It was all or nothing. And then in verse 2, he said he desired of him letters to Damascus. In other words, he desired letters from the high priests to go not from just in Jerusalem, but now to Damascus. Because he was absolutely 100% sold out that he had to destroy Christianity. That's how dedicated this man was. In fact, in Acts 8 and 3, it says, As Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, hailing men and women, committing them to prison. He was out to devastate it, completely devastate what was happening. And I thought about this, what drives a man to be so committed? And for that somewhat, we have to have a look at the background of Saul. You may know, you may know not, that he was brought up in a place called Tarsus. And this was a city in Asia Minor. It was on the border of Syria. But he had one of the greatest universities there. It was on par with Athens and Alexandria and Egypt. And another thing, whether you know or not, is that he was from an extremely wealthy family. Extremely wealthy. How do we know this? Well, the New Testament actually says that he was a Roman citizen. Now, if you look at that period of time, to be a Roman citizen and not actually born in Rome, that meant that the family bought their citizenship. And to buy citizenship from the Romans was extremely expensive. Because the Romans at this time, their empire was so big, they were trying to fund their armies. So they were selling citizenship. And only the wealthiest families could ever buy this. And then we have Saul, very well educated young man. Some people actually say that Saul would have been a child genius. They say at 13, he was sent to Jerusalem to study the law under one of the most prestigious teachers called Gamaliel. Gamaliel was actually known as the beauty of the law. In other words, they called him that because nobody was able to expound the Old Testament scriptures quite like this rabbi. So Paul had a very prestigious life. Uh, Saul, should I say, had a very prestigious life. He was a prominent member in the Sanhedrin. His whole life revolved around his position, which was a Pharisee. He would have been extremely wealthy. He would have been financially secure. Everything he had going for him. So why, oh why, did Saul burn with such a hatred for these Christians? Well, when you actually scratch the surface a bit, you start to understand maybe a bit more. Because in the synagogues, you had, if you like, three tiers of people. 
you had what they called the Pharisees, and then you had what they called the Jews. And it's actually where we get our term God-faring from. You had these people that they used to call God-faring. And these God-faring people weren't Jews, they weren't Pharisees. But they made up the bulk of the synagogues. They would actually just come to hear the law expounded or the Old Testament scriptures. So they would have made the bulk of it. And you see when these Christians and the disciples started to preach, these were the ones that were getting saved. Now you see the synagogues were starting to empty. With that went the money. Now there was a problem. Because the lifestyle was starting to have to change for these men. Not only that, the Pharisees formed the bulk of the government of Judea at that time. So you can imagine the problem Christianity was going to pose to them when they were no longer the major religion in that area. So all this was coming against them. So when you see Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, it is something of Paul's surrender. When he sees this, it's Paul surrendering. But was this the first time that the Lord was dealing with him? I don't think so. I think the Lord took a dealing with Saul way before then. Because I think this experience topped it off where he completely surrendered to the Lord. But I do think one of the reasons for his hatred was the conviction that that man was under. You see, Saul as we are probably all know here, was there when Stephen was stoned. He would have seen this man expound the Old Testament. He would have seen this man in amongst the most learned men there ever had been in the Sanhedrin. Literally tie them in knots with the Scriptures. He would have seen the Holy Ghost fall on this man. He would have felt the conviction Because it says in Acts 7 and 54, it says that they were cut to their heart. They couldn't listen to him any longer. They dragged him out and they stoned him to death. And even then, in his death, Paul would see something that he had, dare say, had never seen before. A man full with the Holy Spirit that was willingly given his life. To the Lord Jesus Christ. And I dare say Paul was seeing more and more of this. As he was laying hold on men, women and children around the area. And Paul was fighting against this. Paul was fighting against this conviction. I would dare say he thought to himself. If I could just eradicate this Christianity. Then I wouldn't have to feel this pull on me anymore. Then all this has got to go away. And I mean, you have to look. The distance between Jerusalem and Damascus is about 150 miles. And it wasn't an easy travel either. It was through some of the most dangerous country of bandits and everything you could think of. And it would have took Saul nearly two weeks to get there. So you can see how committed he was to destroying these people. But there's a few points I see in Saul's conversion. The first point is Saul was blinded 
It says in verse 3, And as he journeyed and came near to Damascus, suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. So he was blinded. This was to show him his spiritual condition, that he was blinded. And the light was the witness. And it also showed how much light that the Pharisees and the Jews had been given. And they had been blinded by it. In verse 4 it says, He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecute thou me? And you notice, Saul fell to the earth. This showed Saul his true position without Christ. He was nothing but the dust of the earth. And some of the greatest lessons we ever learn is when we feel like we're face down in the dirt. Let's be honest. But this is where the Lord brought Saul to a low point that he then could realize who Christ was. He started to get the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this, why persecute me? That always comforts me, that. Because you see, when you're coming against the Lord's, you're coming against him. And you're never going to win. Verse 5. He says, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. This was the Lord saying, Son, why don't you just surrender? You're really not going to win this one. And that's exactly what he did. And it's funny because when you actually look at the geography of where he was, as he would have gone down this road, he was right near Damascus when this happened. And he was actually at a place called Mount Hermon. And it's funny, it actually means sanctuary. So Paul was now, had a revelation of Christ, and he was now in the safe arms of the Lord. And I just thought, at times, when we look at this, people say, well, you know what? Paul was instantly changed at that point. Everything about him was changed. Everything was completely changed. I don't, I don't think it was. Was he a changed man? Definitely, yeah. Did he have an encounter with the Lord? Yes. But something still remained the same. That was Paul's passion. That was his desire. Paul's dedication never, ever changed. You see, when he was persecuting Christianity, he was all out to destroy it. When he met the Savior, he was all out for expanding the kingdom and showing people Christ. Never changed. It never changed. It says in verse 6, Acts 9 and 6, it says, And he, trembling, astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? You can see his heart straight away. It's that heart to serve straight away. And you see, Paul, when you realize this, he started to realize that he'd done the religious thing. He'd done all the ceremony. He'd done all his own will. He'd done everything that a religion could ask of a man. But it couldn't come close to the experience he had just had. 
he knew he met with a real thing that day. Let me ask you this. In all honesty, and now I'm, I'm just asking you because you have to remember where it come. It come to me first. How many of us really changed when we come to the Lord? All honesty. Because I know in my life, I'm not one for giving me testimony. I must admit, maybe the Lord's got to deal with me with that one. But I know all I had, every waking hour, everything I did, I served the devil. I served him well. I never, ever want to get to glory and say to the Lord, say to me, why did you not serve me with the same zeal you did your other master? And yet when we see this with Paul, he had that same zeal. And even when Paul, after this, he goes into Damascus, and then the Lord speaks to a man called Ananias, and you know this, and he says, go and pray for him. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. He says, go and pray for Saul of Tarsus. Go and pray for him, because he's got to be a chosen vessel of mine. And Ananias, I love this. He actually tries to give the Lord a bit of benefit of his own wisdom. He's basically saying, Lord, you know who this is. And the Lord's saying, I do. Go and pray for him. And you know something that never dawned on me, really? Maybe it was just me. But how faithful Ananias was to go and pray for this man, because let's be honest, he was coming to kill Ananias and his family. That's what, that's what Saul was going to do. He was going to kill him, his family, his friends, everybody that he knew. But Ananias still went and prayed for him. You see, there's a difference between a relationship and a religion. You see, a religion is, oh, I'll do this, or I may do this, or I may do that. And it looks good. But a relationship is really doing something that you know that you don't really want to do. But then you're sold out for him. Because it's not your will anymore. It's his will that is to be done. That's when we start to enter in to a relationship with Christ. Because we start to know who he is. I want you to notice something. The love of God pushed men like Ananias and Paul on. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. It says, For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth me, Because we thus judged that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and arose again. That word constraineth is a Greek word called sonikitho. And it gives the idea of a strait or a ship that goes down a narrow channel. 
it's forced or it's pushed to go down this narrow channel. What Paul is saying is, it's the love of God that strives me on. It's his love. It's his unwavering love for me that carries me through. That forces me on to reach the lost. That forces me on to lay hands on the sick. Forces me on to go through everything that I go through. His love for me. I didn't deserve it. But he loved me enough to reveal his beautiful self unto me and what he's done. It's what Paul's saying. It's his love that constraineth me. And listen to this. John chapter 8 and verse 30 says, this is the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> says, as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continued in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Look, to the Jews which believed on him, listen to this. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed. We're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free. Verse 39 in chapter 8 says, Then answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Verse 44 in the same chapter says, You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own will, of his, his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. You know what the Lord's saying? I can see the counterfeit. I know what it looks like. You say one thing, but you don't do it. And there's a lot of counterfeit Christianity. I'm just being honest. That's the truth. All say it. They can all sound like it. But the Lord knows. You'll never pull the wool over his eyes. You know, and I just heard the other day, there was debates on about it. and It's funny, I was just talking about it when I walked in, about an evangelist. I don't watch God TV and there's a good reason why I don't watch it, to be honest with you. I seen this man preaching and he says, oh, the spirit fell on him. He said, it told me to kick this old woman straight square in the face. I mean, come on. He told him to kick somebody in the face. Are you flipping wise? Like, I mean, Seriously. And this is the kind of stuff people are watching. And then the next thing, you know, it's come out that he's messing about with other women and everything else. And you know what? He says, oh, uh, pray for me uh, that I'll be reinstated. Where's your repentance? Why don't you go back to the wife and kids that you left? This is what burns me up. There's no repentance anymore. It's all the love of God, the love of God. He has wrath. And people stand in the pulpit and they start giving out all these wee stories to people. 
Where's the truth of the word of God? There's no reverence in it anymore. There's no reverence in it anymore. And you see where it all started with Paul. You see where it started with him when he met the Lord. Look at this. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 6. Look at this. It really hit me. And he says, and he trembled. He trembled before the Lord. In Isaiah 66 and 5, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. When was the last time the church trembled at the word of God? When did we tremble at it? Were we in awe of it? When was the last time we saw the beauty of Christ in it? Or his majesty? When was the last time, brother, sister, when you had an encounter with him? When you couldn't speak? When you couldn't move because you knew he was in the room with you. When you'd open the word of God. When you prayed and the tears rolled down your face for a nation that was going to hell. When was the last time? When was the last time? I remember Landon Ravenhill said at his time in the Salvation Army on the General Booth said a man and woman couldn't walk into those services without falling to their knees under the power of the Spirit of God and crying out for mercy because of their sin. When was the last time we saw that? James chapter 2 and 19, it says, Thou, thou didst believe that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Sometimes I think the devils have got more sense than we have. Because they tremble at God. They tremble at his word. First Peter chapter 1 and 16 says, verse 16, chapter 1. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who is without respect of persons, you see, he's no respecter of persons. Remember that, brother or sister, he's no respecter of persons. doesn't matter whether they're in a pulpit, where they are. If you want the Holy Spirit, if you want Jesus Christ, he'll give it you to the fullest, no matter who you are. He's no respecter of persons. Judgeth according to every man's work, Past the time of your sojourning here in fear. In fear. For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. From your vain conversations received by the tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Brother and sister. Peter says, spend your life in reverence before Christ. The amount of times people have asked me, brother, should I do this? Brother, should I go here? Brother, should I go there? And the only answer I can say to them is, if the Lord was stood next to you, would you do it? Because if you wouldn't, don't do it. Because whether we like it or not, he's in us. 
Wherever we go, he goes. Whatever we see, he sees. I think one of the saddest scriptures I ever read is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. If you want to turn there, you can do. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 8 and 20. And it says this, And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man have nowhere to lay his head. There was multitudes, multitudes come to the Lord. Heal my son, Lord. Touch this one, Lord. Lord, will you pray, do this for me. Multitudes. Not one of them said, Lord, would you come home? Would you come and stay here? You've got nowhere tonight. I'll take you. Not one of them. Do you know why? We don't mind you being here. We don't mind you being there. We don't mind you doing things on our terms. But don't come into my house. Don't come back home with me. I don't want you there. A true relationship is when we want Christ all the time. We can't just come into a church and say, oh, I don't mind you being there on Sunday, but don't come home with me. I don't want you at home. Sorry. Doesn't wash. He's with us all the time. We need to start opening up. Whatever it is, is blocking your relationship with the Lord, brother and sister, will you get rid of it? And quick, repent of it and move on. Let's not cheapen the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's done for us. We can't pick and choose the things of Christ. I know especially nowadays, and I understand where some people are coming from. There's a turn and frying again about the moving of the Spirit in churches. And to some degree, I've seen some strange things and I, I do understand. But Paul plainly puts it to us that everything should be done in order. And when it's done in order, the Spirit of God moves in a place. And it should be. Because you see something, and this is something that people are missing. If you're trying to throw the Holy Spirit out of a church, if you're trying to say that the Spirit is not for today, listen to this. This is what Stephen, a charge laid at the Pharisees before he was stoned to death. In Acts 7 and 51. Listen to what he says. Ye stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. 
They're trying to tell you the Spirit of God isn't for today. Well, it's funny. When Stephen said, you're the ones resisting the Spirit of God. You'll notice something was said about Saul in Acts chapter 9 and 16. He says this, I will show him great things he must suffer for my name's sake. That one's a tough one, isn't it? He was going to suffer for the Lord's namesake. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, it says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Listen to this. And the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. You see, the power of his resurrection was that he may know Christ that changed him. That he may know the power of the move of God, that he may know that Christ is now in him. That was the power of his resurrection. That Christ came to dwell within him. And all the things that Christ did, he could do through the spirit of Christ. Not in his own flesh. You notice something he says through the fellowship of his sufferings. See, Paul's starting to understand something now about the Lord. As he now come into relationship with the Lord, you see, relationships are never ever really formed in the good times, in the best of times. You can have a good relationship with anything, anybody when everything's going well. The only time a relationship is ever really formed is in the hardest of times. It's when you're struggling. That's when you have to be there for one another. That's when you see, even, I remember my grandfather had a friend. He knew him for years. And I didn't know, but they were in the army together. And they were in World War II together. They had a friendship or they had a bond there. It was never going to be broke. All the years that they knew each other, right the way up till he was in his 80s. Why? Because they suffered together. They'd been in the hardest of hardships together. And this is what Paul is trying to say. I know him through his sufferings. I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like to have people that seem to come alongside you and then walk away from you. I want nothing to do with you. I know something of what it's like when he was rejected, when he had nowhere to stay, when nobody wanted him. That's what he's saying. Our relationship is formed through some of the hardest of times we will go through for him. When Paul was beaten, when he was stoned, Paul could only count on one thing. That Christ was never going to leave him. He was always going to be there. He was the one he could count on. 
Paul met the Lord. He gave him a new vision, a new outlook. He didn't think, see things the same anymore. This man that was so feared, he filled all areas with fear. He was now a force for spreading the good news. He now had a fire and a passion within him, that same fire and zeal for spreading the gospel. He was now sold out for God. The call of the Lord had called him into relationship with him. You know, people will tell you the biggest enemy the church faces is the devil. It's not. Hello, devil's defeated. He's under our feet. The biggest enemy we're ever going to face is lukewarmness. That's what it says. We're living in the Laodicean church age. I've said before, we don't have to be a Laodicean church. Nowhere in scripture will tell you that. But there's one thing, lukewarmness makes the Lord sick. Maybe you're thinking this evening, maybe there's a loved one. Maybe there was a son or a daughter and they've just been praying for him and you've not seen anything happen. Maybe there's somebody that was sick and you just say, I've been praying for him and it's just zapped everything out of me. Well, let me tell you something. Don't give up. The world will have you to give up. The world will tell you, you're finished. Everything's finished. But you see, Christ says he is our hope. He is our blessed hope. Never give up. Because you will never, ever get to see the prize of the glory that the Lord has for you. If you imagine when it says in Scripture that the whole world and the riches in it is worth nothing compared to what Christ has for you. Can you imagine that? The Lord has something for you. And if you're listening to this tonight and say, well, brother, you know what, this has been... A bit of a hard, hard message tonight. Well, I want to encourage you then. Because in Revelation 3 and 19, and I've read this many times and said, thank you, Lord, for it. Revelation 3 and 19, listen to this. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Hallelujah. How many times I've sat under a message and I've wanted to strangle Pastor Ken. <laughs> but the truth is, he was preaching the truth. And I looked at that verse and said, Lord, I thank you that you love me because you're chasing me. In Second Timothy, <clears throat> chapter 1 and verse 6 says this, Wherefore, 
I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee, by putting on my hands. Brother and sister, you can stir up the gift of God that's in you. We can pray for one another. We can be there for one another. Stir up that gift of God that's within you. Do not let that calling that the Lord's placed on your life start to die. Because we live in an age now where we need every brother and sister to stand for Christ and burn as bright as ever. Because let me tell you something. The world may be bad, but you see the light that's placed in you, it's got to shine brighter than ever in the darkness. It's in you. It's in you. Don't let the devil rob you of that. Is it worth it? Revelation 3 and 21 will tell you exactly what's in store for us. If we overcome the lukewarmness, if we overcome this church age that we live in, Revelation 3 and 21, if you'll put it up on the screen, please. To him that overcometh, listen to this, I will grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and I'm sat down with my father in his throne. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? 